Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. I'm wearing a jacket today because it's in the 50s. It was in the 50s this morning, so I figured, hey, why not? Might as well. I got to get a use out of it somehow. Uh, Well, today we're going to be looking uh, at uh, perhaps the maybe the most important passage in in all of the book of Philippians. And uh, there's probably three or four sermons here. Uh, You're only going to get one today. I know you'd want three or four, but uh, we're just going to give you one today. And we're going to look at um, Jesus. Uh, Hey, what do you know? Uh, We're going to look at Jesus and not only who he is, but maybe what people say about him and what we should think about him, how we should view Christ, what, what kind of example does he set for us? And then how should we live out that example uh, with people, uh, other people of faith? And so uh, a lot has been said about Jesus uh, over the last 2,000 uh, plus years. Some of those are very good things. Uh, Some of those are funny things. Uh, Some of those things are questionable things. Uh, And so I want to share with you just some some thoughts that people have had about Jesus over the course uh, of history. Uh, the first comes from uh, a gentleman named Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, you might know his name. Um, and he said this about Jesus. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Hmm. I'm not sure that's true, uh, but that's what he believed. Uh, I don't think Jesus was a socialist, and I don't think he wanted a better life. I think he wanted new life uh, for everybody. Uh, But it's interesting how someone from a communist country would perceive the person of Christ. Uh, And then there was a a very famous uh, philosopher uh, with the last name of Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. And here's what he said. Jesus died too soon. I don't think that's true either. Uh, If he had lived to be my age, he would have repudiated his belief. That means he would have given up his belief. He would have deconstructed, like a lot of our millennials and Gen Zs are doing today, uh, deconstructed their faith. Uh, I don't believe that's true either. Uh, Jesus had one mission in mind uh, as God himself to give up his life so that we would have eternal life. And then famously on an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show, I know all of you tune in regularly, uh, <clears throat> she, she made this bold statement. There couldn't possibly be just one way that is one way to heaven. And then a lady in the audience, uh, yells out, well, what about Jesus? And Oprah responded with several uh, interesting questions. She said, what about Jesus? Does God care about your heart? Or does God care about if you call his son Jesus? The answer is yes, he does care. He does care. And then perhaps uh, one of the more famous Jewish people of all time, uh, Albert Einstein, uh, the great mind, uh, inventor, mathematician, Um, not a Gentile, a Jew. Here's what he said. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and the other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus, Albert Einstein. 
And then, uh, just for good measure, Ricky Bobby. The world likes the baby Jesus better. If you saw Talladega Nights. The, the irony of this is that statement is true. Most of our world likes the baby Jesus better. They, they don't want to follow the self-sacrificing, humble, God in the flesh, Jesus. They want to keep baby Jesus in the manger. And today, Paul writes a very different story for us to pay attention to in Philippians chapter 2. And he's calling the church at Philippi, and I would argue calling us, uh, to live a certain way, uh, to model our lives after Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Scripture, not the Jesus of philosophers and communist leaders and talk show hosts but to follow the Jesus of the Scripture. And so look at Philippians 2, verse 1. He's continuing his thoughts from chapter 1, which are all about uh, how we should interact with each other. And so he begins, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Paul writes this section about who Jesus is and what he has done and how God will exalt him, he focuses attention first on us, on the people of God, on the church. He, he continues his ideas about how we should interact with one another, how we're called to live in, in love and in unity with one another. Paul is making a passionate plea here, this encouragement, this exhortation, a challenge, a, a please, please. If you're going to live your lives in such a way, please do it this way. I, I want you to be of one mind, one accord. I, I want you to live together in love and unity. I, I want you, the way we would describe it today, I, I want you to pedal in the same direction, I want you to pedal together in the same direction. I want you to go in the same direction at the sp same speed with the same purpose in mind. That we would pedal together in the same direction. You ever been to the beach and you've seen those Surrey bikes? They usually hold four or six people and, and they're kind of a stand-up. They have a canopy uh, and, and you all get on and you pedal together. They look like a lot of fun. <laughs> Until you actually get on one and try to accomplish it. They, they, it, it's misery Be, because you'll have four people trying to pedal or even if it's just two people 
Inevitably, you have a short person and a tall person, or you have an eager person and a not-so-eager person. You have the competitive person, the non-competitive person. All these factors come into play, and so there's this constant battle of how fast are we going, how sorry, you're not doing your part, all of like. It's a wonderful model of love and unity. It's, it's usually what not to do. Uh, in, in the opposite way, there's a wonderful little race that occurs every summer uh, in France. It's called the Tour de France. You might have heard of it. Well, in the Tour de France, there's always a group of cyclists Uh, who end up bunched together like this photo. And and that group of riders, all from different teams, you can look, their helmets are different, their jerseys are different, you can see some of the guys with the similar jerseys, they're on the same team. And and those guys are all in this giant pack, pedaling at 30 or 40 miles an hour, down hills, this close to each other. And they have one purpose in mind, because usually when this is happening, there's three to eight people who are way ahead. They've broken off from the pack and they want to try to win the race and get so far ahead that no one can catch them. And so this group of people called the Peloton, so now you know it's not just a stationary bike. It's it's named after this thing, this group of riders who are on different teams, who have, who have different goals, but they all have one purpose in that moment. We're going to all work together. We're going to all cycle at the same speed, even though we're on opposite teams. We're going to cycle at the same speed in the same way so that we can catch those three, four, five, six guys at the front. They have one purpose. They pedal together. They work together because they can draft off each other. They can go a lot faster. And that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Like, all of you are different. All of you have different desires and dreams, but you have one purpose. You should have one purpose as the body of Christ. They would work together for the sake of the gospel. That you would be of one mind. And he says, you can do that. Why? Because you have encouragement. You have encouragement not just because you're good people and like you're friendly. You live in Friendswood. Some of you at least, you know, you Pearland people and League City folks. We love you too. But, but no, I, I, I am, am encouraged because I'm in Christ. That's the thing that brings us encouragement. Not our location, not our background, not our history, not our school, nothing. No, what brings us encouragement so that we can pedal together is that we're in Christ. We belong to Jesus together. And, and I'm, I'm comforted that The love that God has for me, the love that, in this case, the church at Philippi knew that Paul loved them. He loved them. And so they could carry on, they could continue to to live in a way that honored the Lord because they knew that there was someone who would walk beside them, who would care for them, who would provide comfort for them. I, I can pedal together with others in the faith because the Spirit of God lives in us. We're of one spirit, the spirit of the Lord. And I can have sympathy and affection for you. And you can have sympathy and affection for me. Compassion. Compassion is one of the unique gifts of Christianity, that we can have compassion for one another. 
And so he says, because you have this sort of familial relationship of love and encouragement, because you're of, of one spirit, because you exercise compassion and grace for each other, you can accomplish more. You can be of the same mind. That word there of one mind actually means one brain. You'd have one brain. That's kind of weird to think of, like physically, that we would all have one brain. But that's the concept here, that we would, it would be so in tune with one another in our purpose to accomplish the things of God that we would all be thinking similarly. We would all have the same love. We would all have the same mission. We would all have the same purpose to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus. That's what Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi to do in this moment, to pedal together in the same direction that we may have the same mission to bring light to the dark world, to bring hope where there's hopelessness, to bring encouragement to the body of Christ, to, to share on a, a mission to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ to overcome sin and death. And if you have the same mind, the same love, the same purpose, and the same mission, it eliminates things like rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition, which is what he talked about in the previous chapter, chapter one, where there were some guys in his midst that while he was imprisoned, while he was in house, under house arrest, uh, they were sharing the gospel to sort of pour salt on the wound, to, to puff themselves up and put Paul down. Well, if you're of one mind and one accord and you're all rowing in the same direction, pedaling the same way, you don't have any of that stuff. You don't have rivalry and ambition. You don't have conceit. You don't do things just so you can make yourself look good and make somebody else look bad. That doesn't exist because you have one purpose in mind. There's a sense of humility among the body of Christ. Humility is one of those uniquely Christian values. You don't, you don't see it in the rest of the world. You don't see it in your workplace. You don't see it in school. You don't see it in athletic competitions. You don't see it in society. You don't see it on the highway. <laughs> you sh not if you're driving near me. But humility is, is one of those uniquely Christian values. And Paul points the church at Philippi in, in helping us understand that, that humility in the body of Christ is, is not just a good quality but it's the character of Jesus. And humility is, is, not, is not being a doormat, not letting everybody run over you. No, it's having a proper estimation of yourself. It's understanding your position, your stance before your creator. I, I understand my weakness and my full dependence on God, and I also understand his glory and his grace. And in the same breath, I understand my own glory and grace because how are we created? We're created in the image of God. So if I'm created in the image of God, I shouldn't think lowly of myself. I just shouldn't think too highly of myself because of my sin. And so it's having a proper estimation of who I am. It's, it's being others-focused rather than self-focused. And as he says here, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider those interests more significant. It's as if he's saying, hey, you're, it's not that your stuff doesn't matter. It's that you need to make sure you're paying attention to the needs of others before you focus on your interests, your preferences, your wants. Sometimes we get that reversed. 
We make our preferences number one, and we make everyone else's need third or fourth or fifth. He's like, have a different mindset. Have this mind among you. He uses that word mind a lot about the unity of our mind, but then also how we think and how we live life. And that mindset should be like the person of Christ. That Christ is our supreme example of humility. He is the ideal. Because what did he do? He left the glory of heaven to come here to redeem us, to forgive us of our sin. The scripture says he didn't, he, who had the form of God, he had the form of God. You're like, hmm, so that was, he was kind of like God or he looked like God or he had some, no, no. That form, the word form actually means essence. He is God. He didn't consider the fact that as, as his Godhood, he didn't consider that something to be hang, hang, hung on to, hanged on to, hung on to, grasped, clutched. I don't know if you've ever, ladies, been in a, a not so great part of town or the mall and maybe you've got a lot of money or maybe you're just nervous and, and you hold your purse a little tighter, you clutch it a little tighter. That's the idea here. He, he didn't consider his equality with God, his godship, his godhood, he didn't consider it something to be held onto and grasp and clench. No, he held it with open hands. And so he willingly, he willingly emptied himself, made himself nothing so that he could become in the likeness of man and the form of a servant, the essence of a servant, a servant. And Paul does a, a masterful job here of helping not only us, but the church at Philippi know exactly who Christ is. He was God who emptied himself to become man. And that man lived a life that we couldn't live, a life of perfection because of his love for us. So much so that he gave himself up willingly to die on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to die. And not only just to die any old way, but to die on a cross. The worst possible death in the ancient world was the death on a cross for the penalty of sin, to pay that penalty of sin. He emptied himself for you and me. I think about that idea of emptiness you might around your house, in the pantry, in some cabinet in the kitchen, or maybe in the closet somewhere in the entryway, you might have an empty vase or 12 empty vases. You know, those little glass vases that, you know, are supposed to have flowers in them a lot of times. But somehow people just collect, collect vases over the years. You just, they just sort of show up. And every time I look at a vase, I think a vase isn't supposed to be empty, it has a different purpose. It's supposed to have water in it and usually flowers. And so when you look at an empty vase, if you ever just one day put an empty vase out in your house and just leave it there and see what people say when they walk by. See what they say. Oh, no flowers today. That might be a little dig at the husband or someone important. But it's odd to see an empty vase. And that's the idea here is that, that Jesus emptied himself because an empty vase there's nothing in it it's empty just air that's the idea here that Jesus completely emptied himself so that he could identify with you and me 
He gave up the glory and the perfection of heaven for you and me. Which is quite the opposite of what Paul talks about these guys in chapter 1 who were doing everything out of vain glory. Jesus is the, the polar opposite of what Paul talks about humanity is oftentimes. We're all about vain glory. We want to puff ourselves up and we want to make ourselves well known. We want to tell everybody how great we are. And Jesus did just the opposite. He emptied himself because he was looking out for the, the need of others. Your need, my need. And instead of selfish ambition, what did he do? He took the form of a slave He became a servant to all. He didn't consider equality with God selfishly, no. He considered you and me, just as he's calling us to consider one another as we think about our faith and we think about living out our faith and modeling the person of Jesus Christ. And he chose to obey the Father Willingly give up his will. That's what he emptied himself of, was his will. He didn't become less God when he became human. No, he was still 100% God. What he did was he emptied his will and became obedient to the Father. And that obedience led him to the cross, death on a cross, as a full demonstration of God's love for you and me. His love is the self-sacrificing love. Not a selfish love, not a vain love. No, a self-sacrificing love. And so on that day when Jesus died on the cross, the mission of God's love was complete on the cross. The penalty that you and I deserved was paid, paid in full. But that wasn't the end of the story. The cross isn't the end of God's glory or God's mission. No, what happened on the third day was that God vindicated his own son. Just like those who humble themselves, those who live a life of humility and service, they will be vindicated, they will be honored and exalted as well. But he exalted his son. He vindicated his son by raising him from the dead on the third day. And this passage here at the end uh, verse 9, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. That, that phrase highly exalted, the Greek word is hyper. You know anybody who's hyper? Do you know anybody who's hyper? Yes, okay, good. Good. I, most questions are easy. Uh, yes, we know people who are hyper. It means like uh, above average, right, in, in, the, in an energy zone. But I like to be above average. Hyper is the word. He will be hyper exalted. He will be super exalted. He will be exalted so high that no one else will ever be exalted to his height. And on top of that, everyone else ever created, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, which usually means they're dead and buried, may or may not be those who are in hell, everyone will bow at his name. Everyone. That's super hyper-exalted. That's what will happen. That, that God super-exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
that his name is greater than any other name ever. To the glory of God the Father. And so I want to encourage you today to know that you would know that everyone, everywhere, will one day confess that name Jesus. And my hope is that those of you in this room, those of you watching online, that you've already done that. That you've confessed the name of Jesus as your Savior. Because one day, everyone will do it. Exalt His name. It may not be a Savior, but they will exalt His name. Because God very clearly lays out a very simple path for us. To have a relationship with Jesus Christ. To be on mission to have purpose, to work with other people who have the same mission, and that is to receive Jesus Christ by faith, to put our hope and our trust in him, to highly exalt his name, that he is the one and the only one, despite what Oprah Winfrey says, he is the one and the only one who made a way for us to have a relationship with God and for us to defeat sin and death and to live forever. And so my prayer this morning for all of us is that we would be people who confess today that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that he is the one, not just generally who saves, but he is the one who has saved me, rescued me, given me new hope and new life, so that I can now be on that same mission to have one love, one purpose, one mind with everyone that calls on his name as well. And so my hope for us today is that we will be a people who are following after him, peddling together, exalting one name above every name. Will you pray with me?